we have to see that there is more that points to the immaculate nature of the divine than just what finds itself in the binding of a book. And Jesus, as he shows, he's learned the tradition, he's learned the religion, he is keen on all of the ideas, thoughts, and theories of his native people, and it still leaves him yearning for something more. Well, hello everyone, welcome back to the Spiritual Nomad Podcast. My name's Luke, thanks for dropping into the channel today. We are continuing our series through the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. I know there's been a couple other episodes in the mix as well. Last week, uh, we talked about if cannabis lowers your vibration. You can check out that video somewhere up here. Uh, the week before that, I just had to just make a fun response video to how many critics have come to the surface about the gospel of the Holy Twelve. Clearly, it's evident that this information does not want to be accepted by uh, the masses of Christians. Their response, their criticism, their calling me a blasphemer and a heretic is more evidence for why this gospel has been marginalized and hidden throughout the years because it is in contradiction to so much of what we have just accepted to be doctrine, dogma, and tradition within the Christian tradition. And so it confronts that. And when there is a confrontation, there is friction. And where there is friction, there is, if you're not a healthy person, there is a reaction. And so the reaction that we continue to get from this series is either that of acceptance and of gratitude and of a wider, more expansive understanding of the incarnation of Christ, or it's the exact polar opposite, and that is frustration and anger and rage and uh, bitterness and all of these things. And so uh, I welcome it all. And so two weeks ago, I made a video about that, that I welcome all the criticism. It doesn't bother me. Uh, years ago, it probably would have, but it's okay. So if you want to watch that video as well, that will be up here too. So uh, we're going to jump back in though today with some more about the lost years of Jesus. Uh, I've made a few years, a uh, few years, made a few videos about the lost years of Jesus over the years. Uh, a few years ago, um, three years ago, maybe I made a video about the lost years of Jesus going to India um, and learning from uh, those of the Far East. Uh, I'll just go ahead and put that video up here too if you're interested in that a few years ago. Um, and then also we've recently in this series have been talking about that as well. I'll link another video up here as well um, about some of Jesus' early, more childhood formative years. So Jesus, uh, today what we're going to be talking about is, uh, as we learned uh, a few weeks ago, Jesus goes to Egypt. And Jesus goes to Egypt to uh, to learn, he was taken to Egypt as a young child because uh, he had to escape from Herod, who was going to seeking to kill all of the young uh, boys, which we see that in the gospel as well. I believe uh, memory served me offhand. I think Matthew talks about that, where uh, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to Egypt to flee. And Jesus spends many of his early childhood years learning in Egypt about uh, Egyptian, Egyptian spirituality and practices and culture and lifestyle. And so it's no wonder that whenever Jesus becomes an adult and has some traumatic experiences in his life, that he goes back to a memorable place from his childhood. That's what many of us do, right? We have experiences when we're a child, when we're a child and when things 
get a little haywire in life or when things get a little blurry or a little distorted, many times we revisit the essence of those earlier formative years to help bring some sense of clarity and help bring a sense of direction in our life to help clear that static. And I think that's part of what Jesus went to do when he went to Egypt is he learns the tradition uh, of his Jewish ancestry uh, after returning from Egypt as a child. And we see him again at 12 years old schooling all of the teachers of the law. But then as he continues his studies and then after he becomes an adult, I think there is something that is still yearning in the heart of Jesus. There's something that is still more to be explored in spirituality that some of his native tradition just really isn't fully embracing. The Hebrew tradition, Hebrew culture is a very earthy culture. It's a very um, practices culture in terms of its rituals. And as you read through the gospels, there's all of these different festivals and uh, feasts and things that happen. It's very ritualistic. Uh, even in terms of its sacrifices in the Old Testament, it's very systematic. And I think that Jesus had a deep mysticism about him that was yearning for something more than simply the traditions that get him in that access to his true essence of identity through his connection to the Father. And I think in his formative years, the Egyptian life and mysticism kind of sparked some of that. And so Jesus ventures back to Egypt to learn from people who he himself was around for many years. And today we're going to learn a little bit of what happened on that journey on the trek back to Egypt. So this comes again from the sixth lection of the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. My wife's been reading this. She's almost finished with it. She has this really fun bookmark up here. So, <laughs> But this is the Gospel of the Holy Twelve. And uh, we're reading from Lection 6. So if you have a copy, go ahead and turn to Lection 6. We're going today to be simply just looking uh, at verse 12 in Lection 6. So this is just one little paragraph. Um, afterwards, yes, we're going to learn about Jesus going into Assyria and India and Persia, but not quite yet. A lot of times people want to jump to that. If you're a fan of Yogananda and you read books like this, The Yoga of Jesus, then you will probably have already known that Jesus likely went to India, but we sometimes get ahead of ourselves in that, even that video from a couple of years ago you know, uh, kind of getting ahead of ourselves into that. Where did Jesus go before? He didn't just immediately go from Jerusalem uh, into, from Israel to the east. He revisits his roots. And his roots are found in Egypt, where he spent, I think, six of his childhood years, if, uh, if I'm bringing that up correctly. I'm sure somebody will correct me somewhere. People love to do that. Okay, so uh, verse 12. Just a little back, background really quick. So a couple, couple weeks ago, as we said, Jesus uh, it says went down into Egypt that he might learn the wisdom of the Egyptians, even as Moses did. I already riffed on this for a long time, so I'll digress. And going into the desert, he meditated and fasted and prayed and obtained the power of, a, of the holy name by which he wrought many miracles. Again, I already talked about this in a previous video. Now, and for seven years... He conversed with God face to face, and he learned the language of birds and of beasts and the healing powers 
of trees and of herbs and of flowers and the hidden secrets of precious stones. And he learned the motions of the sun and the moon and the stars and the powers of the letters and mysteries of the square and the circle and the transmutation of things and of forms and of numbers and of signs. From thence he returned to Nazareth to visit his parents and he taught there in Jerusalem as an accepted rabbi, even in the temple, none hindering him. So, needless to say, there's a whole lot going on here. This is sort of just a bullet point list of all the things that happened to Jesus over the course of seven years. Seven obviously being the number of completion. This is always going to be the, the number, the, the, uh, the whatever, uh, that brings us into the fullness of a thing, right? Seven days in a week, we can follow that rabbit trail down of seven. But Jesus shows us what happens to him over the course of these seven years, namely what he becomes skilled in, what he, uh, kind of the secret sauce of his ministry and of his life that would later follow him. He learns essentially all about not only just nature and the physical reality of this earth, but how the physical invisible plane interacts with and engages with and manifests through this physical earth. He brings this spiritual reality into the earthly reality. If you notice, it's both mystical and practical. Practical is probably not the best word, but tangible would be a better word. He learns the power of both the spiritual and the tangible. Let's just roll through this list and just riff a little bit on some of these things that he learned. So first and foremost, I think it's interesting, he conversed with God face to face. The verse above talks about he learned as Moses did in Egypt. What's interesting about Moses being in Egypt? Well, whenever Moses went into his full power, what did he do? He went and he met God at the burning bush. Later, after he delivered the children of Israel and they were wandering around in the wilderness, what does Moses do? He talks to God face to face. It's said that whenever he came down from the mountain that his face was illuminated from the presence of God. So I think it's notable that when we see Moses and the reference to Moses in Egypt and Jesus in Egypt, that Jesus begins to do the very same things that Moses does, talk to God face to face. This is what Jesus is doing, conversing with God face to face, and that he learns the language of birds, beasts, let's stop there, of birds and beasts. So essentially, all created things, and I would go as far as to say, I've been really thinking about Moses in a lot of ways and how he was so exposed to Egyptian cultures from a baby being brought up uh, in royalty uh, under the Pharaoh. He would have known all of the Egyptian mysticism uh, before having that heart change towards his native people. And so these could be things that would be natural for someone who is of royalty in Egypt to learn. Somebody who is an expert in you know, uh, Egyptian things can comment below or contact me. I'm not an expert in that. Um, I've been reading Thoth the Atlantean though, the Emerald Tablets, so getting more familiar with uh, Thoth um, and some other things of that nature. That's not what this video is about. 
So he learns basically that all creatures, all creation are beings that have some level of consciousness to them. They are able to be communicated with. They're able to be spoken to. I almost think of like Game of Thrones, you know, whenever you send a raven, right? Like you can direct the raven to do what to do, tell it where to go, right? This is Jesus being able to converse, and we'll read some more fun stories about Jesus with animals um, at a later date. Um, but he learns to communicate with birds and beasts. He learns the healing power of trees. If you notice that there is the term tree hugger, right? There is something about that. It's not just hippies who want to love on the earth. It's that trees have a whole communication system in and of themselves. I was just up in Eureka, Northern California last week, and we were walking through these redwood groves and talking about how underneath the surface, it's all one big organism, essentially, and all of these trees are just sort of the things that are sprouting out from the ground under this big communication system that's really all one thing underneath the ground. Trees have a particular intelligence to them. Uh, no, they don't speak in language, obviously, but they do hold a particular power and energy that they are coming out from the earth connected to a larger sort of communication. It's interesting to note about trees that they are all one thing. So if one tree is uh, has a disease or is sick, the trees will allocate resources to that tree for its flourishing, for its healing, for its betterment. It's all one thing. Jesus learns about the healing power of trees, um, of herbs. My wife's training to be an herbalist right now, so she's particularly excited about Jesus learning about herbs and the power of the healing of herbs, of flowers. Uh, we just bought a book, too, about foraging, California foraging. Um, the earth is filled naturally with things to bring healing into our life. Jesus is orienting himself towards learning that, that it's not all just about feasts and Passovers and rites and rituals, but it's about the integration of the natural elements of this earth that incorporate into our life for 100% flourishing. Um, Jesus then now moves from uh, this sort of very tangible earth with animals and plants and trees into more esoteric things, into more mysticism. He makes this shift from the herbs and the flowers then to the stars and to the powers of the letters and the mystery of the square and the circle. What Jesus is talking about is sacred geometry. Jesus begins to learn these sacred practices, these ancient practices of learning about these precious stones, uh, crystals, and it, okay, so I know right now, people are just going to lose their shit because crystals and stars and the cycles of the moon and all of these things are extremely taboo, or even herbs and trees and it, it, people, in the modern age, look at all of this as witchcraft and sorcery. And they're kind of right. Because that is what a lot of that derives from. But it's important to discern spirits and what spirits are uh, to us as we engage with them. But Jesus has an orientation towards learning about all of these things that Christians would now deem as absolutely heretical and would deem as dangerous and would deem as dabbling in darkness. 
But yet here we see Jesus learning from these because apparently there's some wisdom to be found. And I love this because nothing's off the table. If God created it, why would there not be goodness in it? If God created all of these precious stones, if God created the trees, if God gave us herbs and flowers, if God gave us all of the motions of the sun, if God gave us the mysteries of the square and the circle and all of numbers and letters to bring us into greater, more expansive awareness about the foundation and function uh, of the universe itself, why would we not see it as good in some way? Why would we immediately deem it as evil just because it's unknown to us. It's a mystery to us. We don't quite get it. If we have to be a student of something, we think it can't be true or right in Christianity, all while yelling at people to be disciples and to be learners of the scriptures. We have to see that there is more that points to the immaculate nature of the divine than just what finds itself in the binding of a book. In Jesus, as he shows, he's learned the tradition, he's learned the religion, he is keen on all of the ideas, thoughts, and theories of his native people, and it still leaves him yearning for something more. The more that he finds is found in things that are esoteric, spiritual, intangible, and things that are extremely tangible, like earth itself. Jesus incorporates all of these things, including all under the umbrella of goodness, that nothing is to be dismissed, but everything is to be taken into, and I would say discerned in how it applies into the, ap into the application of our everyday spiritual living. And so Jesus learns about these precious stones, about crystals, because they hold a particular power. I was just watching a few weeks ago, I might have mentioned it in an earlier episode, on Netflix there's a show about these mysteries and it shows I think nine or 12, I think nine scientists and they kind of follow each other and whatever, this is not spiritual or religious or esoteric or you're not gonna find this on Gaia. Like this is a very sort of logic, linear, sort of scientific based show. And one of the first people, actually it's the second person, uh, it's this guy who is learning about dark matter. Everything that he's understanding is dark matter. He's like, there's these things that are going in and through us and around us and all of this activity is happening. We can see it, but we don't know what it is. And he's created this big contraption to try to figure out what this dark matter is. And what he needs in order to understand this is this huge crystal. Why does a scientist need a crystal to do his scientific work? because a crystal holds energy that cannot be recreated in any other man-made thing. He has to have a crystal birthed from the earth. That is the energetic piece that he needs for his scientific studies. Here's a guy that only goes on empirical evidence. Here's a guy who is not spiritual at all. He actually told one of the other scientists, this is science, we don't guess. And he's very stoic but he needs a crystal to learn about the energy of dark matter. Do you need any more evidence for why crystals are important? Do I think they dictate your life? Do I think if you have one in your pocket, you have some supernatural ability? Not quite, but I do think what it does is it at least opens up 
the possibilities of what the power that holds and that it does hold a particular power. Scientifically, it holds a particular power. Dark matter scientists are needing crystals to do their work. That means there's something important about that particular uh, crystal element. And Jesus orients himself towards learning what that is, not dismissing it. So Jesus learns these precious stones. He learns the motions of the sun and the moon, essentially astrology. Jesus is learning about all of these cycles of the sun, the moon, and the transmutation of things. I'll get to that in just a second. But what we learn, if you have the pattern app, I did a, another video. Maybe I'll put it up here. I don't know. Maybe I forgot to. But I did a video about the pattern app and about astrology and about how astrology doesn't trap us, but it just gives us an awareness of the energy that's at hand. That's it. There's an energy that's at hand that you can collaborate with and work with and uh, even utilize for a particular advantage, or you can be a victim and subject to that energy. Jesus learns about the motions of the sun and the moon, of understanding how to work with the energy that's already present and at hand to, I would say, manipulate, maybe that's not a great word, but to manipulate the physical reality based on the invisible energy by the sun, the moon, the planets that are around us. Jesus orients himself towards learning, essentially, astrology. If this video doesn't get me absolutely kicked out, I don't know what will. I don't care though. I love it. I freaking love it. Jesus is blowing our mind with, with stuff that uh, we have deemed as evil. So the sun and the moon and the stars, he is doing all of these things. Again, we mentioned the sacred geometry, the power of letters, the mystery of the square and the circle, and the transmutation of things. The transmutation. Jesus is essentially uh, showing us alchemy. He's showing us alchemy. And if you know the word alchemy, that word chem, alchemy or chemistry comes from Egypt. Egypt, before it was known as Egypt, was the land of Chem, K-H-E-M, Chem. And what this is uh, full of is the wisdom of Atlantis. Both the Atlantean brings the wisdom of Atlantis to the people of Chem and gives them um, all of the uh, spiritual uh, awakening to the truth of who we are beyond just this physical bone and body and gives them power. He has the force of vibration and all of these things begin to happen by his will, by his thought, by his power that emits from him and is able to transmute things. That's how we get the pyramids that we see today, that these were built not by Egypt or Hebrew slaves, that these were built by the power of thought and vibration transmuting things into other things even. It's not necessarily these guys in an old, you know, uh, English dungeon that are, you know, trying to make gold out of stones necessarily. That did happen later, more so in Spain than in uh, England or that area. Spain was really known for its alchemy uh, and trying to change stones into precious metals, but I digress. Um, the transmutation of things. This is when Jesus shows us that he pulls a coin out of a fish's mouth to pay a tax debt. This is whenever Jesus takes just a few loaves of bread and uh, some fish to feed 10,000 people. 
yeah, it's it's not just the feeding of the 4,000 or the 6,000. They only counted men back in those days. So with women and children, over 10,000 people. Jesus transmutes these things. He takes water and makes wine. He learns these things from the wisdom of the Egyptians and of forms and of numbers and of signs. And I'm going to finish this episode with this because we're pretty much at time. We'll talk more next week. Be sure to subscribe. Um, so he learns all these things, transmutations of forms, numbers, and of signs. From thence, he returned to Nazareth, that's where he was from, to visit his parents. What a good son. Visit his parents, and he taught there and in Jerusalem as an accepted rabbi, even in the temple, none hindering him. Here's the thing. I think that Jesus goes away for seven years. And don't you think it's curious when he comes back, people want to know, where have you been? What have you been doing? What I think's incredible about this is that Jesus, in my opinion, this is just my creative uh, authority here, is that he learns all of these things and begins the art of translation into the native tongue and tradition of his people. He begins to take this wisdom, this esoteric knowledge, this information that is beyond the understanding of the psyche of his people and begins to be a incredible translator to his people for the awakening of their spiritual enlightenment. And this is uh, probably my disposition because I see myself as a form of translator. I see myself as a form of taking these bigger, larger, expansive ideas and really synthesizing them and bringing uh, familiar Christian language uh, and seeing that this language is actually way more expansive and illuminating than what we have been taught and told by our evangelical Western reality. And Jesus, I think, does this as a master, as a skillful person. Because how do you go and learn all of these things? How do you converse face-to-face -face with God? How do you have this incredible awareness of the physical reality and the spiritual reality, and then go back to your hometown of Nazareth and then to Jerusalem, the spiritual center for uh, Hebrew people, and begin to teach as an accepted rabbi with no one hindering you. That just doesn't happen. As we see, even today, Rob Bell makes a hint that maybe we got the afterlife a little wrong and only, let's see, 11 years ago, Evangelicals burned him at the stake, essentially. Burned him at the stake for making a notion that con contradicted the traditional idea of the group. How much more in a pre-internet, pre-technology time that people really gave all of their identity to their tradition and history, and Jesus would pot potentially and would eventually disrupt that and bring friction to that. But for years then, he goes back and he is just an accepted rabbi in the spiritual center for his native people. This doesn't happen by being abrasive and aggressive. This happens by being full of grace, full of gratitude, full of gentleness and patience, 
and full of skill and wit to be able to translate these things into realities that would be familiar to the people of his origin. So I think that Jesus living as an accepted rabbi in the temple with none hindering him uh, is showing us that he is priming the pump for what will happen when he returns back there years later. So next week we'll talk about Jesus going to Assyria and India and Persia. Uh, but for right now, there's that piece of time after some traumatic things in Jesus' life, uh, after the loss of a spouse potentially, uh, and trying to understand his role in the world, he goes to the origins of his childhood in Egypt and uh, for seven years converses face-to-face -face with God, learns about uh, herbs, learns about planets and stars, learns about uh, sacred geometry, learns about how to do this life in a way that is way more than just this physical understanding of reality. He brings that back to his people and in the kindest way begins to download these things to uh, them before taking off to the east. So, Interesting stuff, uh, at least, at least, if you don't agree with this, at least what it does is open up your mind to a potential different idea of who Jesus was. It gives you a different perspective about potentially the vast reality of Jesus being a extremely awakened person and learning from all things because all things can be translated for good for healing, growth, and awakening. Peace and blessings, friends. We'll see you next week as we continue the Gospel of the Holy Twelve series.